History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is The History of Persia, Episode 52, The Adventure Continues. Last time, I covered the Battle of Salome, which went to the Greeks. It was a naval disaster on the Persian side. The Persian fleet was reduced to as few as 300 ships, maybe less, in a single engagement. Somewhere between 150 and 300 ships were destroyed and disabled in a single day of fighting. One of Xerxes' brothers was dead, and the famed Artemisia of Halicarnassus had barely escaped the carnage. After experimenting with some alternative tactics to take the island of Salome and destroy the Athenians once and for all, Xerxes had to call an end to that year's campaigning. He sent the sons who had accompanied him thus far back ahead of the main force, along with Artemisia and the fleet, while he and Mardonius made plans to withdraw from the burnt shell of Athens. Mardonius would remain in Greece with a small force, but Xerxes and the main body of the Persian army would go home. The Greek navy chased after their Persian counterparts, but gave up when they reached Andros, the northmost island in the Cyclades, and still had not seen any Persian ships. With the Persian fleet gone, the Peloponnesian naval commanders were eager to sail for Corinth and join their countrymen, or else go home for the first time all year. 
Eurybiades of Sparta led them west as soon as Themistocles and the other Athenians agreed to call off the chase. That was well and good for the Spartans, Corinthians, and their neighbors. The Athenians were in a very different position. They didn't quite have the ships or the numbers to launch an assault on the Persian mainland, but they did have enough to carry out some kind of campaign. They were also representing a city that had been all but wiped out by the Persians. Athens and its people were left with whatever they'd been able to drag out of the city, and maybe possessions or property in the countryside if it happened to go unnoticed by the Persian intact. The craftspeople, merchants, markets, and taxes of the city itself weren't making any money and couldn't start back up without rebuilding. The wealthy aristocrats who owned farms in the countryside still had their resources, if they hadn't been ravaged by hungry Persians. Still, winter was approaching quickly and those farms wouldn't be productive any time soon. Before the Athenian ships departed the island, Themistocles decided to strong-arm the people of Andros. He asked them for money, presumably for supplies for the fleet and Athenians, or to pay his sailors. The Andrians obviously refused. Themistocles tried to compel them by saying that the Athenians were supported by two great gods, persuasion and compulsion, i.e., we can ask nicely or we'll pillage your island and besiege your city. The Andrians responded in kind, mocking his euphemistic deities by telling him that they were plagued by their own gods of poverty and helplessness, and Athens would not see one single coin. Apparently, Themistocles felt pretty desperate because he ordered his sailors and marines to form an army and besiege Andros. As promised, they pillaged the countryside and put the city of Andros to a siege. Even while Andros was still under attack, Athenian ships dispersed into the Aegean to demand money and tribute from as many islands as they could reach and pressure. Herodotus isn't sure about what happened on most of the island settlements they came across, but does report that the city of Charistos on Euboea was pillaged, and the island of Paros just paid up when the Athenians arrived. Ultimately, the city of Andros was able to hold out longer than the Athenian marines were willing to stay on the island. They were not really prepared for a siege, after all. They were just a naval force. With the rest of the allies sailing for Corinth, Themistocles was able to plunder large amounts of money from the Greek islands without having to share or get nominal approval from the Spartans. Once they did find out, Themistocles would be able to justify his actions as part of the war effort. All of these islands had surrendered earth and water to either Darius or Xerxes when faced with the Persian war fleet. Officially, they were Persian allies and enemy cities to the Greeks. They were guilty of a new social crime that was slowly developing in the Greek world. Medizing, the act of aiding or sympathizing the Medes, as the Greeks were prone to lumping all Western Iranians together under that label, Persians included. Still, that taboo was not in full force yet. Themistocles' justification for attacking Greek cities in the Aegean was shaky at best. Herodotus, though, does not dwell on these events in his histories, even though the consequences were plainly obvious in his own time. 
Themistocles set a process in motion that would lead Athens to pursue its own imperial agenda for decades to come, and prolong the war with Persia long after the original combatants had moved on or died. For now, though, some light piracy had secured funds to get Athens through the winter, and Themistocles sailed back to Salome before the winter storms off the Mediterranean got too dangerous. Upon returning to Salome, the Athenians made offerings to their gods with trophies of war, most notably three captured Phoenician triremes. Other spoils were sent off to the great oracle of Apollo at Delphi, where the Athenians dedicated an 18-foot statue of a man, probably some god, holding the bronze ram of a Phoenician ship in its hands. Herodotus isn't clear on the timeline, but this whole process of attacking Andros and pillaging its neighbors, or winning prizes, was enough time for Xerxes and his army to pull out of Athens. The Athenian refugees, with the startup funds taken by their fleet's raids in the Aegean, returned to their shell of a city to start rebuilding and find shelter for the winter. But this is the History of Persia podcast. If you want more about Themistocles and friends, you can listen to Casting Through Ancient Greece. If Herodotus can be believed, and his access to Artemisia's family does add credulity, Xerxes was very concerned after Salome. Sending the fleet away, withdrawing the main force of the army, leaving himself, and sending his sons back to Ephesus all point to real urgency and concern. How much of this was actually due to the loss at Salome, and how much was due to other events, is impossible to know. None of our sources mention any other events in detail, if they mention them at all. On one hand, Salome does seem to have put the Persian fleet in dire straits. Literally. They couldn't suffer losses like that again, and they were needed to support the army if the campaign was going to continue. Without them, Corinth got harder to take every day as the Greeks continued to fortify the Isthmus. After Salome, Xerxes may have felt like he no longer had the infrastructure to carry on with the campaign. However, Mardonius's actions the next year don't really support that. The two Persian royals may have had a difference of opinion, but it seems unlikely that difference would be over whether or not a campaign was even possible. On the other hand, Xerxes may just have had other concerns and other uses for his army back at home. If you listened to my interview with Zume Winjinsma, then you might remember that she cautioned against the idea that Babylon revolted again while Xerxes was in Greece. Still, that is one theory. It's also worth noting that ruling out Babylon says nothing about the rest of the empire. The timeline is hard to determine because we lack Persian records and Herodotus's style and structure are dubious. But we do know that there was a revolt in Bactria around this time. There's also huge swaths of the eastern empire and border regions that we know nothing about. Something could have been happening in the Caucasus, India, the Steppe, or anywhere in between. We know that Xerxes campaigned in those regions at some point, though we lack much information. Closer to Greece, there was also the well-founded concern that the Ionians would go into revolt again. 
Xerxes wouldn't have wanted to lose old territory in the process of conquering extra new territory. I'd also like to put forward a third option. The invasion of Greece was never supposed to take this long. So far as we know, though frankly we don't know much, no king since Cambyses had been away from the royal court as long as Xerxes had. He set out in 481, wintered at Sardis, marched on Greece for most of 480, and by the time he got home it would have been two full years. Things didn't go well the last time the king went west for too long. This could even be supported by the revolt in Bactria I mentioned, since it was led by one of Xerxes' brothers. Maybe he was trying to pull a Bardia. I'll talk more about that in future episodes. There's also evidence for this idea in some of the stories we'll touch on more in this episode. By the time Xerxes and his army went home, their supply lines were running out, and Herodotus reports that the Persian troops were starving during the return journey. It gives the impression that the Persians had not planned to support such a large campaign for more than a year. In light of these possible scenarios, Xerxes decided to go home. He placed Mardonius in charge with a small force to remain in Greece and consolidate Persian rule. Mardonius, to his credit, realized he couldn't possibly stay in Athens for the winter. As much as the Persians wanted to conquer and occupy the city, it was a burnt shell and the surrounding region of Attica was drained from hosting almost double its usual population for two months. There just weren't enough supplies and shelters to support an occupation force, even in a reduced form. So they followed Xerxes back north to Thessaly, where Mardonius ordered the local cities and towns to host and supply his army that winter. Though some, like the Macedonians, were probably directed to stay and enforce Persian rule in the south. Thessaly was the best choice for Persian winter quarters. It was one of the most pro-Persian regions in Greece, where some of the cities had openly invited Xerxes to annex their territory. It was also one of the most agriculturally productive and open areas on the Greek mainland. This ensured supplies for the Persians, who were quartered there, and open plains to graze the cavalry horses that stayed with them. This would have been important because Mardonius wanted to maintain a large cavalry force. According to Herodotus, the general was permitted to choose the units of the army he wanted to keep, while Xerxes led the rest of their land force back to Anatolia. This may have been the case, or they may have jointly decided to leave Mardonius with the most effective and best equipped parts of the army. From a literary perspective, this was Herodotus's opportunity to explain why all of those fanciful outfits and loadouts I mentioned in episode 47 never actually appeared on a Greek battlefield. From a practical perspective, Mardonius made all of the most obvious choices. He chose the 10,000 immortals, the 1,000 horsemen who made up the professional cavalry, the Thoracophoros, a word roughly meaning armored cavalry, and both the infantry and cavalry of the Medes, Bactrians, Indians, and Sakai. Here's the trick to that. Herodotus just listed all of the major groups in the Persian army who had similar clothes and armor 
carried similar weapons, rode similar horses, and spoke similar languages. What he actually tells us is that the fighting corps of the Persian army was either all Iranian or at least equipped in the Iranian style. Some records from Babylon that we talk about in an upcoming interview suggest that Mesopotamians and Iranians were probably equipped with the same gear. Two groups might stand out. First, Indians, who would have been very distinct or very similar. They could have been mercenaries from outside of Xerxes' real sphere of control, we just don't understand enough about Persian India to say. And second, the Sakai, who the Greeks probably could identify based on their own interactions with the Sakai or Scythians of Eastern Europe. However, steppe culture and settled culture blended heavily in Central Asia and could have been misinterpreted by the Greeks it wouldn't have been out of place for them to identify a Chorasmian as a Scythian. It's also possible that they too were mercenaries hired from either end of the Scythian world in Ukraine or Kazakhstan. If the Indians and Scythians were mercenaries, they too would have been semi-professional soldiers and obvious candidates to stay in Greece. This specially chosen force only accounted for a small portion of the overall army. By modern estimates, the force that the Greeks met in battle the next year was between 70 and 100,000 strong. Herodotus says 350,000, Diodorus says half a million, and as usual, their numbers are basically useless. The point is just a lot less than before. One number that may be worth believing is Herodotus's estimate for how much of the army was made up of subjugated Greeks. He says 50,000. He is generally more reliable for Greek numbers, so that may not be too far off. Somewhere in the range of 25 to 50,000 Greek troops under Mardonius would make lots of sense given the territory that he controlled, especially if you start including Macedonians or Ionians. In the final count, there could be as few as 20 to 50,000 non-Greeks staying in Greece for 479. According to Herodotus, the number that stayed over the winter was even smaller since a few thousand Persians, possibly the Immortals, accompanied Xerxes back and returned to Greece once he was safe back in Anatolia. All of this just makes it a lot more plausible that northern Greece could actually support the occupying army. It could have been as small as 15,000 actual foreigners, though more like 30 or 45,000, including support staff and camp followers, is probably more realistic. As Mardonius and his soldiers settled into their winter quarters, Xerxes continued north into Macedonia with the rest of the Persian army to begin their march to the Hellespont, and from there to their homes. It was a relatively short journey, only 45 days, but it was not pleasant. It was 45 days of near-constant starvation. You have to think the fleet had probably been doing something to support the supply lines, or else the campaign had taken a lot longer than expected. Herodotus reports that they were plagued by dysentery before they could even make it out of Macedon. Beyond Macedon, they went to the city of Ceres, and on to the region of Paeonia, a confederation of Thracian tribes. Along the way, sick troops were left behind, 
and friendly cities were given orders to quarter and feed them through the winter while Xerxes forded ahead. Their arrival in Paeonia could only have compounded the sense of disaster, especially for the Iranian parts of the army. Apparently, according to Herodotus, the sacred chariot of Ahura Mazda, which represented the god marching with the army at the outset of the campaign, had been left in Paeonia for safekeeping when Xerxes had marched into Macedon and Greece. Evidently, Xerxes placed way too much trust in the Paeonians. Herodotus clearly didn't have a lot of details about this, because the exact course of events isn't made clear. Somehow, the Paeonians had given the chariot to a group of Thracians. Based on the way Herodotus describes it, it may be that these Thracians were herdsmen entrusted with the pure white horses that pulled the chariot, because Herodotus tells us that those horses were stolen. He says they were taken deep into Bulgaria, up the Struma River. Forced to march on without divine favor, the crossing was utterly miserable. But it was probably most miserable for six Thracian princes, according to Herodotus. Once again, the Greek historian clearly only has a vague idea of events and does not elaborate on them, but this story does contain hints of the strained political situation in Persian Thrace. Apparently, there was a small Thracian kingdom north of the Chalkidikes that was still resisting Persian rule. It was just one of many petty Thracian kinglets controlling the regions of Basaltai and Christonia. They weren't outright fighting with Persia, but the king had refused to send troops with Xerxes when he marched to Greece. However, six of the king's sons had joined the Persian army, presumably taking their own retinues with them. When they returned home, their father had each of them blinded, a typical way of punishing royalty and taking them out of the succession in the ancient world. Herodotus, always eager to find personal motivations for everything, suggests that these Basaltai princes were just excited to be part of the war. And that's possible. Thrace was a very martial society, and they wouldn't have been the only young men seeking adventure with the great king. However, given their father's resistance and response to their actions, it could also be seen as a bit of political intrigue in this little kingdom. These six sons seemingly represented the pro-Persian faction of their father's court and acted in political rebellion by going with Xerxes. This was a microcosm of the tensions that were probably playing out in cities and kingdoms all along the western fringe of the Persian Empire. This region had only really been subjugated by Mardonius 12 years earlier, and there were obviously still local rulers who were unhappy with the political situation. With a massive recent defeat and very strained-looking army, many of these local rulers in Eastern Europe were probably looking for their chance to throw off the Persian yoke once again. As they continued through Thracian territory, there was just not enough food to support the army. The supply lines were either not prepared for Xerxes' sudden about-face, or had begun to collapse, and the Persian army had to forage for whatever the countryside or nature could provide. 
which sometimes meant turning to the same grass and bark as their pack animals. At long last, Xerxes and his men reached the Hellespont, only to find that their bridge back to Anatolia was gone. Even though Themistocles was not allowed to sail east and attack the crossing, nature had gotten the job done. A winter storm off the Mediterranean had swept across the Hellespont and torn the pontoon bridge apart. There were still more than enough ships to ferry the royal army across in short time, but it must have just been adding insult to injury at that point. Once across, Xerxes gave the order to open up the supply depots to his troops, who were finally able to get access to as much food as they wanted for the first time in months. But even that killed them, if we are to believe Herodotus, and we probably should. If these men were truly starving, subsisting off of nutritionless scraps for weeks, then it's actually very dangerous for a starving person to gorge themselves. When starved, the human body stops producing digestive enzymes and stomach muscles atrophy quickly. If you don't take it slow and let a starving body relearn how to process food, the results can be fatal, and apparently this happened to many Persian troops before they could finally return to Sardis or their winter quarters in Lydia. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch, and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app, and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today.
up to this point, the Hazarapatish, the commander of the immortals, had been a man called Hidarnes. But the Hazarapatish was also one of the chief advisors and companions of the king. So Hidarnes had to accompany Xerxes back to Sardis. He was replaced on the front line by another Persian by the name of Artabazos. Like most of the nobility, Artabazos was one of Xerxes' cousins. In this case, he was a second cousin by way of Darius's uncle Pharnakis, or Parnica, who had been the head of the administration at Persepolis. During the initial march to Greece, Artabazos had commanded the Parthians and Chorasmians, probably indicating that he had some kind of position as local governor or satrap in one of those regions. He was tasked with leading a few thousand men back across Thrace, reinforcing Persian authority as he went, and joining Mardonius in Greece once again. Artabazos took his time to get back to Greece, not out of any hostility to Mardonius or anything like that, but just because there was no rush. Campaigning wouldn't resume until spring, and a slower pace kept his men out of winter storms. This much smaller force didn't have to impose as much on their Thracian hosts, and would have known to bring ample supplies along with them. As a result, they did not face the same issues of starvation and disease they had seen on their way back from Greece. They also seemed to have taken a slightly different route, possibly intending to stop in cities that hadn't recently hosted a Persian army. Artabazos made it as far as the Palinae Peninsula, the eastmost peninsula in the Chalcidiches, without any notable events, at least so far as Herodotus can tell us. However, once he reached this area just east of Macedonian territory, he found the cities of Potidaea and Olynthos in revolt. These were both cities in the northern part of the Pelinae, and it may be worth noting that this area is immediately south of Christonia, as in that Thracian kingdom that was also resisting Persian rule. Herodotus does not make any connection between this minor Thracian king and the revolt in Potidaea, but it does seem worthy of speculation. In lieu of historical sources, it is impossible to know what was happening here, but it sure seems like there might have been some kind of localized resistance just east of Macedon by late 480. At this point, it was probably early December, but Artabazos set to work besieging Olynthos, technically just north of the peninsula. Unfortunately, Herodotus was poorly informed about these events, since Olynthos was a Thracian city rather than Greek, and he only provides basic details. Evidently, the city fell quickly, and Herodotus says that the population was slaughtered at a nearby lake. It is much more likely that the ringleaders were executed while the rest of the inhabitants were deported, as that's just what usually happened in these situations. Artabazos gave the city to the local Chalcidian Greeks under the oversight of the tyrant of Torini on the neighboring Scythonia Peninsula, who was apparently promoted to a sort of acting governor of the Chalcidiches. As I said, the Thracian occupants were probably deported since their situation mirrors other known deportees, 
like Miletus and Priene in Ionia. From Olynthos, Artabazos and his army marched south to Potidaea. Originally a Corinthian colony city, they controlled the narrowest point on the peninsula, and their own port on the eastern side in the Tyronean Gulf. That made it impossible to surround the city and difficult to maneuver for a siege. Unlike Olynthos, Potidaea was clearly prepared to hold out against the Persians. Somehow, Artabazus managed to get in touch with a sympathetic commander on the inside of the city walls. His name was Timokanos of Skiene, another Greek colony at the southern end of the peninsula. Timokanos and Artabazos exchanged messages by shooting arrows with a letter tied to the fletching over the city walls. They were attempting to arrange some subterfuge where Timokanos would get the Persians up the walls or open a gate, but one of the Persian arrows overshot the prearranged target and wounded a man inside Potidaea. The affixed message was discovered and Timokanos was imprisoned, leaving Artabazos to continue his siege. The siege of Potidaea lasted for three months, leaving the Persians to raid the surrounding countryside for supplies and try to build up mounds against the walls or breach the gates. Realistically, they couldn't even expect to starve the Greeks out since they had access to the sea. It was not an ideal city to besiege without naval support. Finally, after months encamped outside the walls, Artabazos thought he had finally received some divine intervention. All of a sudden, the sea itself retreated. The water receded rapidly, leaving exposed sand and shallow water between the eastern end of the Persian battle line and the unprotected Potidaean coast. The Persians rushed to exploit this sudden stroke of good fortune. Almost all Iranian troops under Iranian commanders from the inland imperial heartland. Of course, if you're at all familiar with the scenario I just described, you know this was a terrible idea. Without warning, a huge wave surged back to inundate the coast and sweep the Persians caught in the open out to sea. Any that could not swim and did not drown were hunted down by the Potidaeans and their ships. In the aftermath of yet another seaborne catastrophe, Artabazos had to give up the siege if he wanted to meet with Mardonius before the spring campaign season. They left the Chalcidiches and entered Macedon, with Potidaea still in open revolt. Herodotus, like the eyewitnesses he met, attributed this defeat to divine retribution from the Greek god of the sea, Poseidon because Artabazos' men had sacked one of the gods' temples. Of course, the description of the tide suddenly pulling out and crashing back is clearly the story of a tsunami, and the Tyronean Gulf is prone to meteo-tsunamis, triggered by a sudden change in barometric pressure over the water. And honestly, at this point, the Persian track record around the sea is enough to really feel like some vengeful god of the Mediterranean was protecting the Greeks from Persia. As spring arrived, everyone was getting ready for a new year. 
In Persia and Babylon, preparations were being made for the Nauruz and Akitu festivals. In Media, herdsmen were undoubtedly preparing for the birth of new foals to raise for the cavalry. In Jerusalem, they prepared to celebrate Passover in the shadow of a partially constructed temple. And all around the Aegean, men were preparing for war. The Persian fleet gathered at Samos to make their plans for the new campaign season. Still reeling from the defeat at Salome, it was agreed that they would not join Mardonius in the west. Instead, the navy was ordered to patrol the Ionian coast. They still weren't expecting a Greek raid on the Persian mainland, but given the number of Ionian deserters over the last year, revolts seemed very possible. While on Samos, they made plans for how they would attack the cities and islands most likely to declare rebellion, quite possibly including Samos itself. They were right to fear that eventuality. Even as they made their plans, representatives and refugees from various Ionian cities were meeting with the Spartan kings, begging them to send the Greek navy to help overthrow the Persians in their home territory. The Greek fleet reconvened at Aegina. Overall command was still held by the Spartans, but Eurybiades was replaced by Leotychidas, co-king to the late Leonidas in the Spartans' dual monarchy. 479 was his year to lead the Spartan military, and he chose to lead the Allied fleet. It's possible that this was actually the Spartans' way to play it safe. Leonidas' son and successor was still a minor, and the Greek navy was both successful and unlikely to see significant combat this year. Leotychidas going to sea may have been one way to protect the Spartan monarchy. It seems the Athenians were holding back some of their ships for the time being, as Herodotus tells us that there were only 110 of the 300-plus ships that had fought at Salome. The Athenians that did come were no longer led by Themistocles. Instead, he had been replaced by a man called Xanthippus. Xanthippus is worth commenting on, mostly because of his much more famous son, Pericles, but also because he is representative of something that happened in Athens during the winter of 479. Even in the face of Cataclysm, the litigious and political Athenians held an election, and Themistocles, the hero of Salome, was booted out of office. To drum up greater numbers, Athens had revoked all criminal sentences of exile and ostracism in 480. This led to all of Themistocles' rivals in the Athenian aristocracy flooding back into Athens all at once, I discussed how they'd all been kicked out over the course of years back in episode 37. At the outset of the war, the situation had been too dire for them to cause much trouble. But once the Persian fleet was crippled, Themistocles fell victim to his own success. Everyone knew that the battles at sea would be secondary to the war against Mardonius on land. Thus, Athens shifted its focus away from Themistocles' navy and toward the heavy infantry, traditionally dominated by the upper class and the aristocracy. Army leaders were voted into office, and they were almost all former political rivals of Themistocles. 
This included Aristides, who I discussed in episode 48. He went on to command the Athenian army. Despite the pleas of Ionian dissenters, Leotychidas flatly refused to go on the offensive. The Greek fleet sailed to the island of Delos, which would operate as their forward position to intercept any potential naval attacks on Greece itself, but they would not go any further for the time being. Back on the mainland, Mardonius called for some diplomacy before they started killing each other. The leaders of the Greek allies were asked to convene with Persian representatives at Athens to negotiate. Mardonius did not go himself, possibly concerned for his own safety, or possibly because unapproachability was equivalent to power in Persian society. He had such a strong position that he did not have to deign to come and see the Athenians himself. Instead, the Persians sent their ally, King Alexander of Macedon, in their stead, a sentence which never stops being strange to read. Alexander I was seemingly the logical choice. He had always been on good terms with Athens and had even been declared an official representative of the Athenians. As a Macedonian, he straddled the line between Greek and foreigner, and was thus familiar enough to seem friendly, but he was also a cousin of the royal family through marriage by his sister and the Persian engineer Bubares, so Alexander was also relatively loyal to Persia. The Macedonian king came to Athens with an offer for the Athenians and the Athenians alone possibly because Themistocles had spent all of the last year courting Xerxes' attention. The king of kings would forgive the Athenians for everything they and their fathers had done to Persia. They would allow them to rule over their own land as a democracy, like the Ionians. They would even help them rebuild their city as compensation. Mardonius didn't really like the plan, but he would be forced to comply by the king's orders if only Athens would go over to their side. Alexander even layered it on further with his own reasoning. He knew from experience that a kingdom that surrendered peacefully to Persian rule could expect fair treatment, even if they didn't like it. But Mardonius would crush dissenting tribes wherever possible. The Persians had more troops and more experience than Greece could possibly match, why fight a losing battle? When the Spartans, and presumably the other Greek allies, heard about this offer, they were reasonably afraid that Athens might turn on them for personal gain. The Spartan envoy to the council at Athens implored the Athenians not to betray the other Greeks. Athens had a reputation for valuing their independence, and really, it would just be immoral to betray your allies. Now, this seems a little rich, coming from a city that enslaved its neighbors, forced the other Peloponnesians into military alliances, and consistently refused to protect Athens the year before. However, the Spartans also acknowledged the realpolitik of the situation, and offered to support the Athenians with food and money for the duration of the conflict, since their city and countryside were in ruins. Of course, the Athenians didn't really trust Mardonius or Alexander, and probably with good reason. They assured the Spartans that they would stand with the other Greeks. 
They told Alexander that they knew the stakes and knew them well before Xerxes marched into Greece. They even went so far as to strip Alexander of the official titles and honors he had been given by the Athenians in the past. They cited the common culture, language, and religion of Greece as the reason to resist the invaders. Never mind the fact that Persia was more than happy to let Greek culture persist and even flourish in the dozens of Greek cities they already controlled. Still, with this council, the stage was set. Alexander returned to Mardonius in Thessaly with news that Athens had refused his offer while the alliance of Greek cities in the south prepared their people for battle. Mardonius immediately marched on Athens, but of course, Thessaly was far enough away that the Athenians had plenty of advanced warning. Once again, the Athenians, and as many people from the Attic countryside as possible, fled to Salome. Mardonius was left to recapture the empty shell of Athens' once glorious polis. This time, not even a token resistance remained and the Persians took up their position in Athens once again. And once again, I will end the episode with Athens as a city of refugees on Salome, while their city was occupied by a Persian garrison in the build-up to a disastrous Persian defeat. Until next time, if you want more information about this podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. There you'll find things like the Achaemenid royal family tree, my bibliography, and the support page where you can find different ways to financially support this podcast. Of course, that includes the one-time payments that are all over the website now, but it also includes Patreon, where you can sign up for a monthly subscription that gets you access to things like my email list, bonus episodes, and more. There's also completely free ways that you can support the history of Persia. The best is always to just let other people know about the show. It helps me grow and helps the podcast find new ears. You can also leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite podcast app is. I always love to hear your feedback. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park 
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.